3-2-1 oli. This is the flickening that you feel happening, the wrecking ball destroying it all. In this case, movies. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Corri. He's Henrik. Uh, uh, and it seems that you are trying to start a new rap career. <laughs> Busting uh, sick rhymes. Yeah, this, this is a, a modified version of a song from a not-so-famous American band, Nonpoint. I thought that it kind of fits our MO in this podcast. Uh, hard to say since I actually have never heard of them. <laughs> and when it comes to silly opening lines, I guess I should have used uh, this Guns N' Roses Welcome to the Jungle intro in this episode because there is a part where the replicant says, Wake up! Time to die! And this is also in the Guns N' Roses song Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, at least the live version. So that's interesting. So so basically what you are saying is that Guns N' Roses are ripping off Blade Runner. <laughs> the Guns N' Roses song is about the vibe in a big city and how it is kind of the jungle in a metaphorical sense. So completely sense. ripping off Blade Runner. <laughs> well, we can put it that way too. Oh, and this podcast started... With us listening to the the, the flip clap theme and you saying that I have completely ripped this song from Blade Runner or the soundscape, and here we are. I I, I, I guess I, I did truly make that remark at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can kind of see like similar sounds now that I listen to the Vangelis soundtrack, but never crossed my mind. Haley has suggested this movie and. Would this be the second film that we are looking at that is a listener suggestion? Yeah. I guess this would be... I'm here trying to run my brain with a cup of coffee, but it's clearly not working when it comes to remembering our episodes, because there are so many already. <laughs> so many. <laughs> so, so good and so many goddamn minutes. Mm. Henrik, how is the life in the polar bear regions? Well, same as always. You... Try to fight with Eskimos for a few pieces of fish while you desperately try to better the soundproofing of your igloo. So you're kind of short on sticks, so you have to fight with fishes. Excellent. At this point, yeah. The sticks have gone in short notice in throughout the entire Lapland region. And now we, what we have is a surplus of fish. Blade Runner. Henrik, Henrik, what's your experience with Blade Runner? I... First saw this uh, was uh, something like would I have been thirteen, fourteen years old. However, back in the teenage years, my art teacher loaned me the film. It was one of those don't remember completely what version of the film it was, but it was one of the versions which had the Harrison Ford voiceover. Yeah, we have seen the same version then, or. Most likely, because there's like seven versions. But uh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's like 
32 versions of this film. Oh. Yeah, there's, there, there's a version where something is missing and then there's a version where there's two seconds more violence and there is a version for every single different font found in, in WordPad and then there is that one version which they made when Ridley Scott and his friends went to the cabin for the weekend and got shit-faced and... Then there's also also the version where where at the end Deckard is trying to punch Ridley Scott, but <laughs> that, 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 that is the best version. Of that. <laughs> yeah, but I I vividly do remember that when I first time saw this one, it did have the infamous narration from Harrison Ford running throughout the film, <laughs> I, and yeah, yeah. It, it kind of a, was the perfect time for me to see first experience Blade Runner since. I myself, at during that time period, I was partly distancing myself from from the sci-fi as a genre. I had kind of a kind of a moving past a happy utopia and that hopeful attitude of the mainstream sci-fi. I had started to flirt with cyberpunk. I was giving very serious thoughts about you know giving my first go at the reading Neuromancer at the time. And then just about on those times, I first time saw Blade Runner. And it really hit the spot when I first saw it and became extremely influential film for me because it really kind of pushed me becoming a fan of cyberpunk and even keeping me with sci-fi as a genre all these years. Okay, Henrik, what's your fascination with sci-fi because I from the early age felt that when I look at sci-fi in many cases if it's not grounded in a sense in reality then I will get bored because it becomes something too much overblown something that I could never imagine would happen or like eh, it feels like we're trying to do something that is so out of this world but at the same time, we cannot really get there because of lack of technical abilities at the time when the film was made. Or, no, it just feels tacky to have these anthropomorphic entities in the movie that are so like humans. But if I would be doing something like this, I think it would need a little bit more imagination. Like, I think Babylon 5 is a goddamn snooze show for that reason, for example. I need it to be more grounded. I think Alien is grounded in a way. It's more like a drama, then it just becomes a nightmare after that. I'm all over the place again, Alien. but go ahead. A- Alien is pretty grounded. I give you that much. It's very much is kind of a haunted house film in space. Yeah. Or, or maybe not so much haunted house, but it very much it's kind of a, like a slasher film in space, in many ways. Hmm. But to me, I guess my fascination with sci-fi stems from, well, from the same source as my fascination with fantasy as a genre, which is the kind of the possibilities that the genre holds within, how it takes you to a new direction, or it can take you to a new direction. So I started says it to the final frontier, and in that frontier, basically everything can be possible. And that might be what first piqued my interest with sci-fi. Later on, I did come a bit disfranchised with mainstream sci-fi's optimism and the happy-go-lucky attitude that, for example, Star Trek has. 
where the humanity has actually worked out most of its problems and found a way for peaceful existence, not simply within humanity itself, but also in contrast to other races, and they have been able to create the federation and all of this. And I guess I eventually, when I grew older, I just started to feel like that that happy type of future is completely impossible for us as a race. And because of that, I finally got so strongly involved in cyberpunk, which gave me the unexplored spaces of the sci-fi genre, but still kept it very gritty and dirty and in many ways extremely hopeless. Yeah, in a way, I feel like in the color space sense, I think this is our third movie in that category, where the colors are this kind of a, I don't know, neon, flash, sign, green, blue, red colors. These would be, what, Chunking Express, uh, Akira, and now Blade Runner. Would you agree? Um, maybe Chunking is the most different from the bunch, but Akira definitely fits here. Chunking is most different, but I can see your argument with Chunking Express also. Yeah. Since talking about the color schemes, there is a lot of that artificial lighting also in Chunking. Yeah, that's right. When it comes to my experience with this film, once again, it was only like two years ago, Max, when I first watched this film in preparation for 2049, which I still haven't even seen. But maybe we'll do it later in, in this show. I presume that Mr. Hendrik has seen it. Yup, I most definitely do recommend okay. 2049. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I watched the US theatrical release. I wanted to start with the sort of a first release that was released. And after that, I wanted to go through all the other versions. But I have to say I got some fatigue after watching the film and didn't feel like going back to that universe right away then and there but okay now i have seen the final cut version and unfortunately there's still five to go but maybe <laughs> maybe maybe someday i'll get to those but yeah so let's talk about the versions then there are at least seven versions and the, well we could even start with ridley scott's version that he has mentioned in interview this so-called early cut has talked about a nearly four-hour-long version, and it was strictly shown in the studio representative sphere, and he talks about it in a documentary called Dangerous Days. There's quite a bit of documentaries around this film. Well, then there's also this 1982 work print, which has been circulated around the bootlegosphere. How, how do you say that? <laughs> anyway, and... It's from 1982, lasts 113 minutes. Key differences, Henrik, you want to go through this or should I? I would almost hazard to suggest that since you are yeah. much more careful with the technical aspects of these episodes, I'm more shooting the fly with a hand cannon type of guy. I guess it's better that you take the lead since we are once again treading the dreadful waters of facts. Yeah, I'm still waiting when somebody's going to bite my buttocks uh, around these facts and correct me multiple times. But anyway, 
work print version apparently has no happy ending. It ends when the elevator doors close in Deckard's apartment and it's just left more ambiguous. There's no explaining of replicants during the starting titles, no unicorn daydreaming, no credits, only the end shown at the end. Well, it's a work print, so that explains that. Well, it could be like a fancy artistic way as well. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I don't know. And no narration in the entire film except only one. There's a bunch of different angles from uh, different uh, framing sizes. The test screenings were a little bit on the negative side, which resulted in the US theatrical cut, where you have narration, which means that the audience was a little bit confused when they saw the work print. Some people couldn't figure out what the hell Blade Runner is about, so they helped the US audiences by the background narration provided very extremely reluctantly by our good old Mr. Harrison Ford. Then jump into 1982 May, there's a San Diego sneak preview cut, so this was only shown, as far as I know, once at a previous screening. Then we have the US theatrical cut, the official version, first release. 160 minutes in length, has the happy ending with the interesting voiceover narration. It's well recorded that Harrison Ford fucking hated the voiceovers but he was obligated contractually to provide this. In the Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford universe, they never even planned to have these voiceovers in the film, so this was a tough thing to bite for both of them. Ridley Scott obviously didn't have the final cut rights, so it was once again one of those studio, well, fuck-ups. Yeah, the long-running story there is that Harrison Ford hated the voiceovers so much that when it came to recording them, he deliberately tried to fuck up the process by mm. making the voiceovers so goddamn awful that the studio just could not use them. Ford himself has denounced the rumors in some later interview, if I remember correctly, it was in yep. 2002. Yep. But once again, you know, that's one of those instances where you don't completely know where the legend starts and wh where the facts actually come into play. Because something to note, even though I don't hate the voiceover as much as many people do, I even in some ways like it, the fact still remains that in some places the voiceover really is god-awful and you just by listening to it you can easily believe that Ford is trying to deliberately fuck up the process. <laughs> yeah, Harrison Ford has specifically brought up the point that these were pretty awfully written by just some unaccredited dude at the office and that's it and he had a lot of problems with those things. There are some specific points like when the voiceover says that whatever it was. These were the dudes who were speaking a mixture of English and French and Spanish and Japanese and something It's completely irrelevant for everything. Then again, in that moment, I felt that it kind of did bring something to the film itself because it kind of highlighted the fact how there is still extremely strong class divide going on within the society, since the lower parts of the society would speak a language which was called 
cutter speak. And it did highlight the multicultural aspect of the world, since the cutter speak itself no longer was a clear language in a sense like a French and German and English are, but instead it was a hybrid language of multiple different dialects. Yeah, in a sense that comment kind of connects the film with our reality in the sense that they make the notion and connection to our life that these languages still exist in some sense. And uh, funnily enough, this is based on 2019, and of course we are recording this in 2019, so the timing couldn't be better. And the vision of the future couldn't be more of. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, outside of Cutter speak, there is like there is a bunch of those voiceover scenes and in some cases I don't feel as strongly that they actually do in any way help the film. And the recording of, of the voiceovers was also in notorious in, in the sense that firstly it, it was several sessions where they tried to make the, the voiceovers work and there were several different voiceovers written. And the final take, which I guess eventually ended up using in the film, was recorded in a mix of all the clusterfuck, where some dude was writing the dialogue for the voiceovers like 15 minutes before the recording session started, and Harrison himself had no idea what he was doing at the premises at the time. (laughs) Well, that's kind of how the end voiceovers sound to me. Kind of forced, the forced happy ending, it reeks a bit like that, because it says something like, well, apparently, I don't know how long this replicant is going to live, but who does, and roll credits, ah, because it wasn't really built in anywhere, and now it just finally makes the notion that, okay. No, in the happy ending voiceover, Descartes just offhandedly makes the remark that at some point in time, before his death in the film, Tyrell had told him that Rachel, for some reason, does not have an expiration date like every other replicant in the film's universe. Hmm. And none of that makes any goddamn sense. Yeah, my thoughts, exactly. There's also (laughs) material from Stanley Kubrick in this happy ending in 1982 US theatrical cut. There's the aerial shots. These were not filmed by Scott, but rather this is like leftover shit from The Shining. Yup, yup. Kubrick had filmed those aerial shots. Like the amount of leftover material from the opening of Shining was really baffling in the quantity that it existed. Like there, there was a ton of material which was result of Kubrick himself being really obsessed about, you know, nailing every single scene perfectly. And because of that, I guess Kubrick had spent like days on a helicopter filming those aerial shots. So they they have like overabundance of material that was never used in Shining in any way. Waiting for that week-long cut of The Shining for (laughs) Ultra Blu-ray in 2036. Yeah, it takes a week to watch the film to the end. Just 90% of aerials. Okay. 90% of aerials. 1982, also there was the international cut, also known as the Criterion Edition. 170 minutes has more violent action in three scenes. And 
that's about it about that and then there's 1986 the u.s broadcast cut so once again from the times when the tv channels seem to have like supernatural powers of editing all kinds of films in any way they wished and somehow they were even able to add their own voiceovers to this version and this was also toned down in the violence profanity and nudity to meet broadcasting restrictions quote-unquote and the film is even preceded by a Saturday night movie teaser explaining the film premise and that Deckard is not a replicant. Except why do you make that point? That's for the viewer to decide. They even question well, it in uh, the goddamn movie. Then again, the whole Deckard replicant is he not has the debate has gone in such wild levels point. In here I kind of can be with the broadcasting station and really support the fact that at least someone actually came and made an official statement within the film that on the question is Deckard a replicant or is he not? Because when left to Ridley Scott, when left to the fans of the film, that debate really has kind of a completely overpowered to a realm of ludicrous. Yeah, if you ask from Ridley Scott, uh, he wanted to leave it open-ended. <laughs> if you ask Ridley Scott today, he, he states how he always meant to make it extremely clear that Deckard is a replicant and you're a goddamn idiot if you refuse to believe that. Excuse me? <laughs> so this yeah. is something, something post-2049. Actually, you know, I, I don't remember when exactly Ridley started to be really offensive with his statements when it came covering Descartes' possible existence as a replicant. Gotta love the guy's temper, yeah. But since you did mention the 2049, the sequel, I actually did find an interview that was made during the production and filming of 2049, where Ridley Scott really does officially address the question of is Descartes a replicant or is he not? And if you know the whole you are a moron if you refuse to believe this stance was not brought up before this interview, it most definitely was kind of brought up in here or that more aggressive stance from Ridley on this question. What? I'm pretty goddamn sure that he said that he wanted to leave it ambiguous. Well, you know, I actually, I do have the IGN interview here on my notes, and I can actually, I can <coughs> quote you the Ridley Scott answer in its entirety. Did he start to act like a replicant during the interview? Well, so, I I, I, can, I can read you the answer, and you, you can, you know, make your own judgment call on the matter. Okay. So, the question is, at what point while making the original film did you decide that Deckard would be a replicant? And Ridley Scott's answer is, and I quote directly from the interview, Oh, it was always my thesis theory. It was one or two people who were relevant, where I can't remember if Hampton agreed with me or not, but I remember someone had said, well, isn't it corny? I said, listen, I'll be the best fucking judge of that. I'm the director, okay? So, and that... You learn, you know, by then I'm 44, so I'm no fucking chicken. I'm very experienced director from commercials and the duelist and alien, so I'm able to 
you know, answer that with confidence at the time. And I have say, to stop you right there, uh, just to say that there was also another interview where I'm pretty fucking sure Ridley Scott said that, oh, that I was kind of still like a fresher during the Blade Runner. So, but carry on. <clears throat> so, you know, back off, it's what's going to be. Harrison, he was never, I don't remember, actually, I think Harrison was going, ah, oh, I don't know about that. I said, but you have to be, because Kaf who leaves a trail of origami everywhere, will leave you a little piece of origami at the end of the movie to say, I've been here, I left her alive, and I can't resist letting you know what's in your most private thoughts when you get drunk is a fucking unicorn, right? So, I love Beavis and Butthead. So, what should follow is, duh. So, now it will be revealed. Quotations in parentheses in the sequel, one way or the other. And that is the entire answer from the man himself. <laughs> okay, I got you, Ridley Scott. Yep, Th- that, that is the director of, 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 you know, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Well, Ridley Scott, at least in my case, you can calm down, calm down, because I never shut out the possibility that he is a replicant. But there you go. Yep, but you know, yeah, the the question surrounding Deckard's being replicant, it has kind of become issue of its own within the film's fan base. And you could almost say in, in the entire popular culture surrounding the film. Yeah, but again, when it comes to this US broadcast cut, indeed, some random dude from the channel or anyway for the CBS was the anonymous announcer in the beginning instead of Harrison Ford voiceovers explaining basically what this movie is about and oh those were the days uh, yeah then there is 1992 director's cut 116 minutes and here Ridley Scott was actually involved he provided notes and consultation for the film but at the end of the day it was put together based on those notes as I understand it by preservationist restorer Michael Eric And due to time constraints, Ridley Scott was never really super satisfied with this version. Ford kind of liked it. He said it was spectacular, quote-unquote. But it did not make him feel any kind of emotions. Again, uh, the work print version was shown in 1990 and 1991. And this time it got more positive uh, reviews. And it resulted in the studio being forced to approve a new official director's cut. And that's what it's based on. Reactions on the work print version. But then there is 2007, the final cut. That for now seems to be the final cut. But time will tell. That's, you, was you, the, ju- you just wait for another five years. <laughs> that there will be some added unicorn footage there. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the four-hour version based on the original early cut. No, no, no. You, you get the, basically, you, you just get the final cut. Again, but there is, there's been some enhanced lighting and some more particle effects in the CGI shots. <laughs> uh, so, okay, if you know this, uh, did, did they add some CGI to the final cut? Uh, they did. They okay. did. There's some of the stuff they did do when they made the final cut. There is a scene when Jorah gets killed by Deckard, the first replicant kill from Deckard in the film, and 
Deckard shoots her in the back and she kind of stumbles around on the ground before dying off. And well, in the originally they used stunt double on that moment when Jora loses her balance. And in the final cut they digitally replaced the stunt double with Joanna Cassidy who came to in front of the green screen and kind of did all the body movement and facial expressions again or at least did the facial expressions again so that they could match her face with the stunt double's face oh jeez in the fi- final cut and something else they did change was when Roy Patty dies at the end and releases the dove and the yeah. dove flies away Originally, the background that was seen, you know, behind the dove on that moment, it it was some kind of a, was it a hospital rooftop or where did they shoot it? Yeah. And now it has been enhanced to look more of the overall cityscape. Yeah, yeah. It looked noticeably off in the overall environment. So kind of a pretty good change. But I didn't know the scope of the changes. So, and this was a 25th anniversary digitally remastered blah 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 version, and also had a limited theatrical release, mainly in the US. Also was in Australia and somewhere. But that's about the versions. Now, logically wise, we would talk about what the hell is the Blade Runner, and you wanna go with this, or what? What's the synopsis of Blade Runner? I guess in its core, Blade Runner is a documentary take on your everyday municipal worker's day in your average municipal worker's life. That's pretty much it. And initially it received split reception. There's an interesting background for the name of the Blade Runner. It's originally from a science fiction novella by William S. Burroughs. And the term Blade Runner in its original form meant quote-unquote, a smuggler of medical supplies, for example, scalpels. And uh, that makes much more sense to me. It became a cult film and is held nowadays as one of the best sci-fis of all time. Set in a dystopian future of Los Angeles 2019. Blade Runner is one of those films that really were found years after it first came out. I mean, the film is kind of famous for the fact that it did bomb pretty hard at the box office. And also in critical reviews, which might be somewhat surprising when looking at the film today, since you would automatically believe that this would be a critical darling. Yeah, I think we can talk about the themes of the film during running the Blade Runner. So, well, regarding the themes of this film, once again, we are coming in touch with the chiaroscuro cinematography that we a little bit touched on in Citizen Kane episode. We have a little bit of that. We have film noir elements. And of course cyberpunk, for which this film is known, which kind of exploded the scene later on. There is some so-called retrofitted imagery. Something is a little bit polished on the outside, but kind of when you look a little bit deeper inside, it's a little bit rotten and worn out. That's kind of about the visual landscapes of this film. But like the main plot elements revolve around existence, humanity. What does it mean to be a human? And in a way it also relates to the subject of free will or the lack of it. 
I guess that would be the main theme of the film. There is also the the whole kind of a societal anxiety and this kind of an antithesis of capitalistic society and way of life to be found in Blade Runner and how exactly cold and alienating this free capital society which would appear to be running behind the scenes of Blade Runner in the film the damage it creates and the kind of inhuman hostility which it targets everyone else yeah the writer of the book that this film is loosely based on is called Philip K Dick and he wrote the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep from 1968 later published along with the release of Blade Runner and it got the main title to the book Blade Runner and on the smaller font you see the original title Dick himself being somewhat of a huge fan of governments and yeah interesting character he had his share of problems had drug problems relationship problems attempted suicide and during his ventures into the drugs he had some paranormal experiences not sure if the most important one of them was kind of purely accidental was it like he was removing his wisdom tooth and he got super drugged out weird explanation but anyway he had some hallucin- hallucinations and he started to believe a lot of interesting theories and uh, then died of complications of a stroke in his 50s unfortunately just few months before the release of the film nevertheless they do commemorate him in the end titles of the film so and they why had the ability they? yeah and why shouldn't they because it was about to be released so shortly but they were able to do it anyway yeah in in many ways philip k dick has been extremely influential in the sci-fi genre and when it comes to the aspect of sci-fi authors often trying to predict what the world of future could be like i would almost dare to say that in many ways e- even though Dick's predictions have not come into fruition directly. I I would say that a lot of the themes and a lot of the anxieties that Dick himself expressed behind, you know, his stories actually has come true. Okay, examples? Well, governmental control, the limits were governmental offices like for example intelligence work and law enforcement are willing to go in order to provide results i would say also this dysfunctional alienation from the surrounding world which in dick's versions would go in hand in hand with the advancements in technology like those would be kind of the first where I would say that even though the Dick's visions of future haven't come into fruition exactly how he envisioned them, the overlying themes which he provided in the background do show their existence in our modern day world. Yeah, it's interesting about the governmental control because I think it very much mainly relates to 
the internet and the new possibilities that the government does have the ability to tamper with now. But with the internet removed from the equation, I don't know if that much has changed. But the digital world in general, yeah. And now that you bring up the point, yeah, it is hard to say, especially on the go here on the moment, how much the governmental control would have changed outside of the realm of internet. Yeah, you, of course you, we have more uh, camera monitoring, for example. Yeah, camera monitoring and it's becoming so everyday. That could be most definitely something that has advanced a lot. But of course, when you try to look at it, like the governmental control as an event, as as something that happens around you all the time, I guess internet is the most profiling and the most influential game changer in that level. But when it comes to the visuals of this movie, Henrik, my mind is blown if, in fact, when the flying car is in the scenes and you see the monitors in the walls of the buildings if this is done with conventional techniques of the time and i'm not looking at some kind of a cgi explosion here that's incredible how well it all blends together when the police car for example is flying and in for example 1046 if i remember correctly and this is something that is very hard to say with the final cut because there is some really seamless cgi added to the images but my understanding is that that is actually a practical effect and they did achieve it with matte paintings outside of the car and then with some really carefully calculated shots around and inside the car i mean usually when you look at these kind of traditional compositions you see quite clearly where the separate elements are put together but here it's really not that easy to always see. And it's in any case, it's always done with such a great care that you have to wonder why it blends so well. I started to imagine that they could have probably achieved this by, for example, the f- flying car. <laughs> you can try to shoot it in an environment, whatever kind of an element it actually is. It's, is it like a miniature or that is flying in a studio, I have no idea. But They were, if I remember correctly, they were miniatures which were controlled by wires. Yeah. And in some of the earlier cuts of the film, you could actually see the wiring of the cars in some shots. Ah, uh, okay. Like the, the wires which they used to hang them from the roof. But once again, for example, in the final cut, those wires have been removed digitally from the film. Well, I kind of get it when you put it into a huge distribution on the Blu-ray and people might start to take notice about those kind of wires. Then again, you do in the cinema as well, <laughs> I would think. Yeah, the problem with the final cut and, and with the CGI image correction kind of is that even though what they did CGI-wise helps the film as a viewing experience because it does hide more kind of the shortcuts that the production team took when making the film. Mm. The other side of the coin is that if you would kind of like to analyze and marvel how they did all the practical effects, the clues kind of finding out how they were made and the lines between 
how an effect was achieved during the filming process. It, it gets blurred to such a degree that it becomes almost impossible to analyze when dealing with the final cut of the film. Yeah, that's really the magic of the film. I, for example, I just can't... You usually can see how things are basically made, but here I get a little bit confused because there's a lot of three-dimensional movement in these special effects and it's astonishing. Which is the biggest thing going on for this film? I mean, it's the most universally agreed thing among viewers that the special effects are fantastic. They are some of the best practical effects I've seen in any film. Yeah. Especially when taking a notice how much they use them. Like, like the quantity where they use the practical effects throughout the film. This is not a film where you mostly get, you know, actors simply acting in very simple rooms or something like that. And especially throughout the film you would get a complicated practical effect shot. But in- instead, here the practical effects are kind of a constant. They are yeah. happening all the time around the characters. There are a lot of scenes in Blade Runner where the characters do something. Like, for example, Descartes leaves the insides of his apartment to go to the balcony. Just to give you an excuse to show you even more of the practical effects. But also, it's a really good movie. It's a... Uh well shot as kind of always it's uh, great to look at all these lights cast on the actors faces it's a fiesta for the eyes regardless if there's special effects going on or not but uh, indeed there's a lot of documentaries related to this film so you can watch the on the edge of blade runner from 2000 you can watch the future shocks from 2003 you can watch the dangerous days from 2007 you can watch the all or variant futures from 2007 so, knock yourself out. Yup, especially Dangerous Days kind of comes highly yeah. recommended from all the Blade Runner documentaries. All our variant futures most notably deals with the issue of producing the final cut and how the work process behind the final cut went on. And if I remember correctly, Future Shocks was made for a TV series I guess it was the shortest of the Blade Runner documentaries and also the most not-in-depth documentary made about the making of Blade Runner. Future Shocks, yeah, it's only 27 minutes, the shortest, I believe. Yeah, but yeah, Dangerous Days, highly recommended. It's it's over three hours, so by, by watching that you get very detailed kind of a look at the entire process. Still no beating up of Ridley Scott, though. And unfortunately, we once again get the ham-fisted attempt of defending of the unicorn scenes in the film. 1983, there was the Betamax and VHS releases, the first ones. Laserdisc was also released as an international edition. Uh, Later also, this international edition Criterion version was released in the US markets. And re-released once again in 1992. Then we get to the DVD age. This was actually one of the first DVDs to be released. So it was released in 97 March. And of course, uh, pure quality. I believe on the one side of the disc, it was like double-sided DVD. On the one side of the disc, you have the Panscan version. And then on the other side, you have the, the widescreen edition. And 
2007 Ultimate Collector's Edition you have this tons of extras now and 2012 30th Anniversary Collector's Edition 2007 HD DVD and Blu-ray and now we get to the extremely amazing stuff you get the, they scanned the original negatives and depending on what kind of material they were dealing with they would scan it in 4K, 6K or even 8K at places and Ultra HD Blu-ray, the best quality version, was released in 2017. Unless, of course, if you are a fan of the superior format VHS. Which is your format of choice if you are a true man of culture? You can't say that about Blade Runner, can you? <laughs> <laughs> you, you? You know, you can't see the lines holding up their cars in the flying car scenes in the VHS. <laughs> I bet you can't. Oh, that, that, those had to actually be digitally removed for the Blu-ray and DVD. Well, uh, this makes an interesting point about uh, existence and uh, how free will fits into the whole equation. Like, we have these replicants and that basically believe that they are humans or equal to humans. And then, of course, you have humans who believe that they are superior to their own creations, the replicants. And the free will fits into the equation in the sense that people kind of believe that they are special in the universe. In the sense that they are able to make their own decisions at will. And that's how it looks on the outside. But at the end of the day, there's the interesting fact that uh, we don't really have responsibility in our own actions. In the sense that all the experiences in our life and the environment makes the decisions for us. There has been some uh, MRI brain scans that suggest that uh, several hundred milliseconds before you actually decide to do something, your brain has already done the deciding for you, which is interesting. But wouldn't in those cases the brain that does the decision making for your conscious mind still kind of qualify as you making the decision? Like, that would be the case where your subconscious is making your decision before your surface mind can actually reach the decision-making process. But the decision would still come from your brains. So, in a way, you would still be making that decision, even if subconsciously. In a way, but there's like a certain distinction that needs to be made here, that... um, that the decisions do not raise in your consciousness, rather it just appears in your consciousness based on the environment and your previous experiences. For example, what is the reason that you choose either coffee or tea in the morning? Well, it's the sum of your experiences from the coffee. You are not free to make the decision that you enjoy coffee. You just do. Hence, you choose coffee. In that sense. But, uh, so what, the reason why you choose coffee is because your brain and its chemical mixture tells you to. Of course you can make the decision that today you're going to have tea because you just realize that you like to do the experiment on free will. Okay, I have coffee and tea, but because I know that people are questioning my free will, today I'm going to take tea for no particular reason just to oppose what I'm normally doing. But even that is like a decision based on previous experiences, I, <laughs> if I you know what I'm trying get, to drive for here. Point. It, it is the kind of a 
age-old question of of cause and effect that has been brought up in brought up in philosophy for a number of times. Yeah, you're not lost in the storm, but rather you are the storm. Yeah, the Matrix sequels were some films that really brought this question to the foreground. But I don't know, I mean, if you follow that cause and effect line backwards far enough, wouldn't there kind of be the point where you, for the first time, decide to try coffee? And in that sense, because you don't have any experience on, you know, consuming coffee, wouldn't that kind of qualify it being your own conscious decision, like, in, in that first point, you actually make the decision to have coffee. And after that, you kind of are locked into this cause and effect cycle, which makes you pick, you know, choose coffee this morning today. Yeah, it's uh, actually kind of a still, even for me, complicated subject to kind of internalize. But the main point being that the actual you is not in control. You're affected by all the kind of internal and external factors and your personality for example is puppet to your chemical balances in your body if you have low blood sugar you are not yourself so it just takes that to change your makeup so you are not yourself when you have low blood sugar so what you have to do is just be the slave for the chemical fact that you have to have some food right now or uh, you're going to pass out or if you want to stop being angry, you need to get a balanced sugar level. So that's all it takes. So basically, you is the makeup of internal and external things that you can't really have effect on. For example, your heart beats. You can't change the fact that your heart beats. If it stops beating, you fucking die. Mm, yeah, in my ways, no one has, to my knowledge, no one has ever fully managed to solve the question of causality. Uh, neither in the field of philosophy or in in Matrix films, where also they never actually managed to completely determine on, you know, what is the end outcome to the question, or what what is the final answer to the question, is there a free will, or is it just, like you propose, a cause and effect cycle in which we are locked in, kind of eternally. This is kind of getting out of the scope of our understanding in a sense but if you look at the rest of the natural world that's how it operates cause and effect and it's all about mathematics and everything revolves around it and if you follow that same logic uh, we are bound to the same rules it is very hard question to grasp and I, i would say most notably is that because we humans as a race we have this almost fetishized fixation on the concept of of a free will and free self. So the whole question yeah. of cause and effect often, I, I would say, is felt like there is an outright attack against the concept of free will and therefore an attack against us as an individuals. One of the best examples that I've heard thrown out there, like a practical example. Well, say you have a serial killer who kills a person, or you, or you have a drug addict who kills a person, whichever the case. This person commits this heinous act, and later the public condemns these acts and blames the person 
that he or she could have done otherwise. He had the choice to make a different outcome, and this is why we penalize this person. But making this point then means that the public is basically saying that if he or she would have the choice, then they would say that all the things that happened before in this person's lifetime would not play a role at all in what took place. The person died, and there was a reason for that. It was the drug abuse, or the serial killing, or the abuse as a child in the family. You know, the murder or killing took place, and it took place, and there was no different outcome. You couldn't avoid that. It happened because of the events that took place before. Yeah, I kind of... Uh, that is very strong one of the larger results that you could draw from the question of, of a free will. Because if we as a society would kind of uh, refuse the concept of free will and instead make the notion that there is no free will, in that case, like you pointed out, we kind of no longer could penalize people for their actions. Because well, yeah. well, once again, that person could not, in that reading of a free will, that person never even had the opportunity to act any way differently. And because of that, it would no longer be right for us for punish him for any any kind of a, any wrongfulness that he may have exhibited in his lifetime. But, you know, if, if we deal with that a level of thought, I would almost make the case that even in those cases, the person in question would actually have a choice, if in none else form than in the end, simply as an act of suicide. The person could decide to kill himself instead of hurting others, if he really would not have any kind of a clear control over his actions. Yeah, but from where is this choice then coming out from? It has to be sourced in somewhere. Let's say you have one decision that you make, but then that decision has a basis in other decisions elsewhere, yeah? Uh, pretty much, yeah. In some way. Yeah, of course. I'm not saying that, of course, there is a point or possibility that you can uh, do different decisions that are better, but you may not always be able to do those right decisions. For example, you would behave differently if you were suddenly in the body of a serial killer. You would make different decisions because of your life experiences. But yeah, as said, it's a huge talking point and I don't think we have time and understanding for everything in this podcast. I, but, I, I guess, yeah. yeah, I mean, like pointed out, the question has never been fully answered by, as far as I know, by anyone, like it is one of those long-running philosophical questions, which every now and then gets brought up, but it's never actually closed completely. It depends on your on your point of view, view, and to, to evaluate in the limits of this podcast, which kind of view would be more accurate and based on what. I don't know, but there are proponents and opponents of free will, and each camp makes some interesting points but I'm definitely more in the no free will camp but to make the whole thing connected to Blade Runner we have this replicants created by humans and humans are basically making the point that these are not really humans or not worth keeping alive because they're simply replicants but they appear to have also 
emotions and memories, it doesn't really matter where they're coming from. They're there. They're feeling indi individuals. And you can make the same point about humans. So the replicants in this film are also aggressive and killing people. And uh, the whole free will shit connects to this in the sense that they are killing the people because they are what they are. They are not evil, quote-unquote, or good. They just are what they are. To draw once again one more tangent to this podcast. Actually, if you look at the how they treat, for example, less than Sweden, the, some of the small drug criminals, they are not necessarily sending them to jail. They are sending them to rehabilitation only and trying to talk them out of the trying to have some kind of a, a psychological support for them to overcome their addiction and of course removing them from the actual addiction which is what they need and uh, not like a condemnation of what they did because it's not solving the problem and we could do this even in a wider scale for d different criminals you know they have a problem that's why the problems occur so the solution is to fix the problem if you can if you can't then yeah you need to keep them locked up for good but i think there is a lot of hope for many of these people yeah i mean society is a defense in in many ways society is actually trying to achieve that in in different ways yeah there are the rehabilitation programs for for example the convicts as the, as the prison sentence is closing to their end so that they can kind of more functionally re-enter the society there is work opportunities that are tried to open for them and of course the society well at least every now and then the society tries to fix itself so that for example societal and economical problems would if not go away at least a lesson in their severity, so that, for example, the EABT societal and economical situations within a nation would no longer create any such of a drastic situation that it would, for example, feed into the possibility of growing criminals. Yeah, there's been some statistics about, for example, the way that the United States deals with its inmates. It very easily throws people in the jail for the smallest of crimes and is having a kind of an epidemic as we know now when disproportionately huge amount of their population is in the jail cells and we look at the statistics of how many of these criminals then return back to the jail so is it exactly working out for them just sitting and rotting in a jail cell how is it fixing the problem how is it changing their mind for the better if anything, I think it's just having a negative effect, especially if the services are what they are. It it could very much be having just a negative effect. Of course, in, in the prison institution of, of the US, you kind of have to remember the fact that in America, the institution itself is privatized. So it is a business run by corporations, and because of that, there is yeah. kind of a financial incentive to have returning prisoners because every prisoner that you actually get means more profits. Yeah, pretty sick. Well, it, it, it kind of is what it is. 
it's easy to condemn from, from for example from Finland but at the same time you know it's kind of hard to say you know following your talking point on the cause and effect how I would feel and act around the subject matter would have I been you know born in US I haven't ever he- heard of any individual who would actually be supporting the privatized prison system but yeah well you kind of have to support it on a societal level or else I would kind of believe if the society would not support it in in that case the society would get rid of it so but the mere existence of, of the said system kind of a is a proof that there, there is a societal acceptance and support for the said system. There are many things that are privatized in the United States. I'm pretty sure that the majority are not very supportive of the system, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it's... Once again, we are, we are talking about extremely capitalistic society, so it's... From our standpoint, it may be very hard to understand and even to see the way, for example, how the American system and the members of the said system see themselves. Maybe if we switch gears, we could talk about the actual film, kind of scene by scene a little. So the film starts with these very futuristic landscapes, and we got to the scene where we have the replicant in an interview, like this replicant company, Tyrell Corporation's interview of the replicant, they're trying to find out, apparently, if he's a replicant or not. Funny thing that is kind of bothering me throughout this film is the fact that they are... It seems to be extremely complicated to find out if somebody is a human or a replicant. You have to go through this whole questionnaire for 20 or 30 questions before you can find out the actual identity. But uh, funny how it is not easier, like take a blood test or uh, do an x-ray or some kind of thing like that. The whole White Kampf issue in the film is actually quite problematic because, as you pointed out, the Void Kampf itself doesn't seem to be that easy of a test to pull off. And also the film itself kind of makes the notion that the test might not be as accurate as it's led to believe. If you ask me, the, for example, most of the questions in Void Kampf like the turtle question given here, it, the style of the film is kind of a utter horseshit in many ways. They proclaim that the question is supposed to trigger an emotional response from the person being interviewed. But first of all, the question itself, I, I think, is bad. But it is also a question where there is extremely easy to kind of... a create an emotional response to the given question since it's so obvious and the emotional mechanics in that question are so easy to see and on top of that there's also is no consistency on how many questions you have to ask from a subject on voice calm because in the beginning of the film when Hoden is interviewing Leon and later on, when Deckard and Tyrell talk about voice comf, there is the notion being made is that it takes, like you said, 20 to 30 questions to determine if the subject is a replicant or if he is not. But then at the same time, you know, in Rachel's case, Deckard makes it clear that it took over a hundred questions 
for mm. Deckard to make the deduction that Rachel is a replicant. So if the limit to the questions usually is 20 to 30 questions, and you can make the call on that basis, then why the fuck did Deckard overall continue the questionnaire to over a hundred questions in Rachel's case? I understood that it's because Rachel's model is more advanced. There is the reason. That there is the reason why it took so long for Deckard to actually nail her down as a replicant. But it still won't explain why Deckard did continue the questioning for such of a long time. Why ask over a hundred questions from Rachel? Why not just ask the 20 to 30 questions which still would give Deckard the implication that Rachel is not a replicant and simply, you know, shut down the interview at that point? Like, it almost appears like the Blade Runners are using the Voidkampf and, you know, just continuing the Voidkampf questioning to a such of a long time period that eventually the subject matter just makes enough mistakes that, based on those mistakes, that Blade Runners can deem them being replicants, regardless of the fact is or is not the subject in reality a replicant. Basically, the origamis, for the largest part, in my opinion, they are manifestations of Kaf's opinions on Deckard. Like, the first uh, origami is, uh, that he makes in the police station is a chicken, symbolizing that Kaf sees Deckard as a coward. The second one is, is a man with an erect penis, symbolizing that he sees Deckard as someone who is thinking with his dick, more or less, and the kind of the final, which does not really, if you ask me, since I'm not in the team unicorn, does not have a clear manifestation of, of an opinion, would be the last one, the unicorn origami. Which, well, the closest meaning of the symbolism in, in the last origami would kind of be maybe Kaf pointing out that Descartes entertains a fantasy when he at the end of the film he chooses Rachel and chooses a life with Rachel who in the end is a replicant. Yeah, I think he makes a very kind of an informed decision about life that no one is going to last forever. Hence, I can choose you because it doesn't matter when we leave this earth, which is kind of a timely at this stage to point out because... A uh, family member recently passed away, and uh, yeah, you know, I've been delving deep into these themes, but I think he makes the logical decision. He loves the girl, then go for it. He's partly logical, yeah, at, at the same time, he does choose someone who is bound to die. Like the rest of us. Like the rest of us, but a hell of a lot sooner than Deckard himself, in most of the cases. Now, not counting in extreme cases like suicide or accident, which would take Deckard off extremely quickly, but if they both would have the full amount of time in their lives, Deckard would still be looking at, like, I don't know, maybe another good 40 to 50 years, and Rachel would have max four years depending on when she was originally created. Yeah, nevertheless, they have already made the kind of illogical decision of falling in love. So 
they can make another illogical decision and be together as long as they are and as long as you're love i don't think it matters how long you're going to coexist that's true love then it is or i guess it is then we have Rutger Hoyer i i guess nobody knows ex- exactly how, how how to pronounce Rutger's name i will go with Rutger Hauer Rutger Hauer plays the baddie so-called the replicant main replicant antagonist Roy Batty he does a remarkable performance in this film has this extremely powerful moment where he's bothering this one is it a scientist guy with the eyeballs and stuff and says now where would i find him takes like 20 seconds to say that entire sentence in the next scene we see the replicant rachel coming to visit uh, deckard the one and only that would be able to kill her right there and then and there but that doesn't happen because they have something going on well at this point Deckard still does not know that Rachel is a replicant. I guess, but by not answering Rachel's question or Rachel's sentence, you think I'm a replicant, don't you? The fact that he is not answering tells me that he thinks that she is a replicant. Then we have the blonde-haired replicant doing some stuff. Interesting thing about the technology in this film, you have this very retro televisions. I guess this is kind of the retrofitting here happening, Henrik. You have the retro television and you have like the, the clear analog signal way of displaying the image, which then, however, is controlled by something digital. So it's kind of analog and digital joining. I wonder if this was just the way that due to technical limitations or lack of idea of how fully digital experience would look like. Is that what they do it like this or is it because they, they want to do this? stylized uh, versus I, I have no idea how they do it in 2049 would be interesting to see if i've un- understood correctly it's a, it's a combination of basically all of those reasons yeah. like the driving idea behind basically everything set design wise in Pedrano was that they wanted to to take a real object like a soda machine or a fax machine or a tv and then redesign that existing machine in a way that it kind of looks completely new yeah i also enjoy the visual aspect of uh this <laughs> facetime call basically where you have the connection to rachel on the payphone and there has been some scribble written on the screen so it's dirty and it looks old but it has all this modern technology going on i also paid uh, attention to the total charts it's 125 so would it be kind of inflation taken into account of 2019? Yeah, still kind of an expensive call. E- extremely expensive call. Then we get to the strip cup, right, with the snake. And Eckhart starts chasing this one replicant and successfully kills her after a extremely visually pleasant uh, chase with enjoyable don't walk, don't walk, go now, go now. On the lights... A lot of good ideas. The replicant from the opening scene is now trying to get Deckard out of business permanently. And a fight ensues. And this is where we have the wake up, time to die. But another replicant saves the day. That is Rachel. The soundtrack of this film is done, of course, by Vangelis. Full synthesizer soundtrack was nominated for BAFTA and all Golden Globe for Best Original Score. Along with Vangelis, there is... Music from Japanese ensemble Nipponia, song called Oginomato, or The Folding Fan as a Target. 
and a track by harpist Gail Lafton, Harps of the Ancient Temples. But the soundtrack, I feel, gives a very... On one end, I really enjoy the soundscape, and on one end, it gives a really sleepy quality to the film. And I don't think that it's properly always contributing to the mood or that particular part in the scene, because it, it, seems, it seems that it just flows in the background, regardless of what's happening on the screen. And uh, I'll be completely honest here, it, it affects my ability to concentrate on this film. I, on the other hand, I'm, I'm completely on the opposite side. I absolutely loved the soundtrack and how it played throughout the film. I am with you on the fact that it gives you this dreamy, extremely slow burn quality to the proceedings of the film. But I, on my end, I, I actually felt that it really did benefit the film and it did help it to create this overall feeling that lasted throughout the film and I, I for my end really enjoyed it. It works for me and also I just don't feel that it uh, works all the way through. But then we have the scene with Rachel and uh, Deckard kind of getting it on and the scene has first kind of a, somebody could say a rapey quality to it but you know it's just the fact that Deckard knows why Rachel is trying to run away and it's the fact that she doesn't she's afraid of getting into a relationship in the sense that she might be expected to live only for four years or that the relationship would not be successful or that Deckard would indeed just be taking advantage and not being for something serious but on the contrary Deckard is very determined to get it on in a serious way and there can, you know, none of that actually in any ways helps to get rid of them. Garfa, like you said, the rapey quality of the scene. And but then again, at the, at the end, she agrees and kisses Deckard, so... Well, you are kind of a between Deckard and a hard place on that moment. Like, I, 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 I do get it, get that. This was not the filmmaker's intention, and yeah, and yeah. this uh, the, what we see in the screen is kind of a combination of a several things that kind of went awry when creating this scene. The f- first one, of course, being that Harrison Ford and Sean Young really did not like each other when filming Blade Runner. So during this scene, Harrison did use way too much force when when pushing Young back to the effect where he accidentally hurt and most definitely scared Young. This plays role also in a way how immediately after pushing Rachel back, Deckard kind of uh, eases his expression and he is kind of a brings his hands close to Rachel in very kind of a tender way that actually ties to Ford fucking up the pushing right there because what happened was that Young, after being hurt by Ford, gave Ford such of a mean eye on the situation that Ford immediately himself got scared and actually toned it down for the rest of the scene. Yeah, yeah, now that you mention it, I can see that he basically throws Rachel against the wall really forcefully and then begins to slow it down yep and that's yeah and that that is 
all you see on that moment really is, you know, Ford being way too forceful and then, you know, actually realizing what he's doing and toning it down. Something that also plays a part in how the scene plays in the final cut is the fact that there were some cutting made. Like, the the way how the sex scene was originally uh, shot, it was more gracious and it was... It showed more skin, it was more quote-unquote sexy. And this was done on the behest of the producer's demands, as far as I've understood. And Scott and others kind of hated it. They felt that it lessens the film itself by, you know, introducing the aspect of, of cheap sex simply for the audience's pleasure. So from the final cut, the scenes of for, for example, caressing Young's thigh and, and uh, you know, and lifting up her skirt, they are removed from the final cut. And with that also some of the sensuality is removed from the film making this scene look and feel, well, once again, more rapey. Through Leon Kowalski, the Roy Batty replicant is able to get to his creator, who seems to be a very hard man to reach, and finally when reached, it's time for a gay kiss. And uh, via that, giving it in kind of a little way and getting rid of the only man who could have potentially been be helping or accommodating in some way these replicants and their wishes, but oh boy, uh, violence wins. There again, Tyrell himself makes the very strong notion that there is nothing to do to give the replicants more time. So he does. Yeah, so in, in that sense, Tyrell is very much the useless creator here. Uh, this is kind of the only moment where the character Roy Batty is listening and uh, taking the words of the person that he's talking to for real and believing what he's saying. After all, he's talking to his creator and regardless of clearly taking for a fact everything that his creator is telling him he decides that it's time to kill you and yeah but i i can actually quite see roy's motivations here i mean the movie makes it extremely clear that what what replicants are in this society they are basically slaves so what what Tyrell crea- has created is is a slave who has a four year lifespan, and now when when his creation is asking for more time, Tyrell tells him that he can't do anything for his creation. So in in that sense, you know, we we are talking about ex-slave who no longer has nothing to gain from Tyrell himself, so why even keep the man around? The Ty- Tyrell himself is ba- basically is the reason for every bad thing that has happened to Roy up until that point, so there really... Uh, I, I wouldn't say that there is that much of a of an ethical reason for Roy to actually, for Roy to spare Tyrell. Especially now that Tyrell makes it clear that it's impossible to help Roy in any way escape the four-year lifespan. But then again, it's the creator and has 
been able to grant at least a life for this person, but apparently there's something so wrong being a replicant that he has he seems to have no respect or uh, making any value for being alive. Well, I, w- I would almost make the case that, you know, if, if your whole purpose on being alive is that you simply are a slave and slave is all you have ever been, Throughout your life, there really is not that much purpose or anything to be grateful for the act that you have been created, or that for, for the fact that you are alive. You are alive. Like maybe yeah. maybe it's better yeah. not to be born than you know solely exist as a slave. But the interesting is that the the creator and the company has not seemed to have ever humored any of these talking points, like. If you're creating one, then seems that at least the Nexus 6 and uh, some models seem to have emotions and even memories. Hence, they're basically humans in that sense. So this company and the uh, the creator has no empathy in that sense for his creations. Uh, no, the... And it seems to be okay for the majority, of, I guess, of the society. It's kind of like modern-day slavery then. It very much is. And the... No, notion is being made by Deckard's boss that the four-year lifespan in itself has been created for the replicants for the sole purpose of preventing them from creating emotions. Deckard's boss, mm. back, back at the earlier in the film, when, when he's giving the police station briefing, makes the point that the corporation itself, Tyrell Corporation, started to be afraid that Throughout their longer existence, throughout the years, the replicants themselves could actually start to form feelings. And the four-year lifespan is a kind of a safe measure to prevent that from happening. So the corporation is actively doing all it can to prevent precisely that, to prevent the replicants from ever actually being able to, to feel and to create feelings. And now Deckard kills the blondie. Not sure if it's in both versions that in 1982 US theatrical cut and the final cut that the replicant is shaking for like 20 seconds there. In both cases, she does shake after being shot, but the longevity of the shot is actually it's just shorter in the theatrical cut. Yeah. They do show it quickly. But it's no way as detailed as it is, for example, in the final cut. And the fight ensues with Roy Batty and Deckard. Roy Batty kind of disjoints some fingers of Deckard's and things get extremely weird. Deckard is, for the first time in this film, truly scared. Tries to escape the building. <laughs> that, 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 there are some shots where it's kind of obvious that the other hand is fine. He's grabbing objects with the broken hand. With no problem, and then on the other shot you see some more struggling, but that's fine. Now, perhaps you as the Blade Runner expert here, you can tell us, all of our listeners, what the hell happens here. Deckard is holding on to his dear life, but uh, Roy Batty seems to turn everything around and grabs Deckard and rescues him. Then has the pigeon or the dove, releases the dove, and lets Deckard be. Then Roy Batty teleports into oblivion. Or was just the imagination of Deckard? No, if you are talking about the death scene, the way I see it is that 
Roy ends up lying on the ground dead and you simply do not see him in the film. Like he, he lies there but he's out of frame. And what? The psychopath has kindness in his heart after all and saves Deckard and dies the, himself. The replicants who most definitely are trying to be kept from actually creating emotions and feelings can see the value in all life, including Deckard who is his pretty much sole enemy throughout the film. And during his final moments, since he knows that he's going to die any next second, actually chooses that he's still going to save Deckard because life itself is valuable. Hmm. Okay. In the final cut, we get to the scene where Deckard is looking for somebody in his apartment, I believe, and then finds Rachel under the sheets. Kind of only knows what the hell she's doing there, but uh, she, she's been stalking in the apartment before. There's the last origami, and then they go to the elevator, and that's the movie. So it leaves kind of open-ended how long Rachel might exist, and it even leaves open-ended if they're going to have a re- relationship or not. But I would say that in the 1982 US theoretical cut, it's made more clear, because they are driving on their whatever honeymoon <laughs> together. Yeah, in my opinion, the especially with all the unicorn dream nonsense, the final cut tries to make it obnoxiously clear that Deckard would be a replicant himself at the end of the film. Even though, you know, Deckard being a replicant would kinda not make any goddamn logical sense in the film's own universe. Yeah, it would be interesting to know the background, how he became... Would we call him a policeman in the first place? How long he has actually worked there if he lives only four years? And all that background. But apparently he has somehow managed to become a respected officer and stuff. Yeah, uh, and for some odd reason, in a situation where, well, replicants are outlawed on Earth, they would actually have active uh, replicants running around in the police force and the replicants that they would use as Blade Runners would actually be way more shit than the replicants that the Blade Runners are supposed to hunt, since throughout the film the uh, Deckard is actually the underdog in basically every fight. He survives the situation simply, well, most notably by blind luck and in no way by being stronger or anyway sk- more skillful than, than the replicants. And not to mention the fact that, well, if Descartes would be a replicant, then the police force would run an active risk that, that a replicant Descartes would start to sympathize and therefore help his his kin, the other replicants that he's supposed to hunt. So it would be basically, you know, having a a replicant as a Blade Runner would be counterproductive in every sense. Blade Runner and Cyberpunk has permeated uh, many types of different consumed media, and also in video games you see influences. For example, I was a really big fan and uh, played hundreds and again hundreds of hours of Perfect Dark for Nintendo 64 back in the amazing heydays. And you can definitely see 
the parallels there are flying police cars and the, even the sirens sound exactly the same and the colors look the same and there there are many others but i'm just raising this because i was a fanboy of perfect dark another clear example of taking extremely a lot of influence from blade runner would be the tex murphy adventure game series okay. and especially you know you just can google the first game's box art tex murphy mean streets and you you can you know simply by from the box art you, you can notice small and subtle hints that they took a great inspiration from blade runner that there was also the two side-scrolling shooters which i did you play very briefly some years ago on commodore 86 emulator emulator they, they were officially called blade runner but the way how they uh, they went around the copyright in, in those games was that they actually bought the license uh, license rights to the music of Vangelis and they uh, marketed the games as games being in, uh, based on the soundtrack of the film and not the film itself. Henrik, the film has finally finished. Would it be quick categories? Uh, yeah, sure, why not? Let's do it. Favorite performance? It very much for me it is a battle between Ratchkar uh, Hauer and Harrison Ford. Both of which I like. I'm I am quite a fan of Ford's low key performance here in Blade Runner, even though Ford gets a lot of shit for his performance as as a Deckard, but I do like it. But you know, if I would have to pick between the two of them, it, it is an uneven choice because Howard gets so much more material and so much more character which with what to play with but I I guess it would I would still nominate Rutger Hauer it's an uneven competition yeah. but you know Hauer does take all the advantage that he can take from the character of of Roy looking at the body of work of Harrison Ford and what kind of characters he usually plays. I have to say that after viewing some Harrison Ford films recently, I have a little bit of a Harrison Ford fatigue and seeing that how his characters usually are the reluctant and tired characters, uh, especially here. And well, it's a great performance and he was looking for something deeper after Raiders of the Lost Ark and he kind of got it here anyway, dramatically more deep. But Rutger Hauer still sh shines as an in insane replicant right here. Favorite scene? I guess that would be the first trip to the police station. You know, those moments when they are taking the speeder and flying it from the city streets to the police station. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same scene is in my mind. When you see all, all the... When you see all the... Well, I guess display screens against the skyscrapers and the police car flies through the landscape made with traditional effects and it's quite unforgettable experience. It is and in many ways it is something that really kind of a provides the basic building blocks for the entire film. Those visuals and that attention to detail which they gave 
in the practical effects. Yeah, favorite quote. Well, it's not exactly a quote, it's it's number of quotes, but I would go the entire Tears in the Rain monologue from Roy Paddy at the end of the film. Ah, good one. I would go with no special reason, I guess, but is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? That's a quite good call, actually. I- I'm almost ashamed that I forgot that <laughs> quote when I was making my own peeks here. Favorite end of life situation would be Deckard's first kill, Zora. I kind of feel best highlights the feeling of violence in the film, or, or highlights what type of violence exists in the film, since it is very much unheroic shooting an escaping woman in the back kind of situation. Yeah, a complete disregard for this replicant life, so... I mean, there is no argument. I would go exactly with the same scene. Okay, we have to get ourselves sidetracked here. Let me see. Do you like noodles, Henrik? Like Deckard? Quite a lot, even though most of the noodles in Finland are absolute dog shit. Depends. Have to go for the fresh noodles in this country. But, uh, yeah, I do like noodles as well. Wonder what kind of noodles Mr. Deckard was having. I don't know what kind, but, you know, if Harrison's facial expressions on that scene is anything to go by, I guess something that he's completely fed up and not enjoying that much. Yeah, typical Harrison Ford. First image that comes to mind from Blade Runner. I would say it's the iconic speeder flying past the Keisha commercial. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, the most known screenshot from this film. The most known screenshot of, of the film. Well, which image best exemplifies said film? <laughs> I, <laughs> would I, be the same for me. It, it would very much be the same one. Or then, you know, the scene with them flying to the police station. Yeah. Isn't that the same scene, though? It is, it is the same scene. It's just exactly a few frames later on. Different shot. D- yeah. Different shot, but the same scene. What took you out of BR? Uh, for me, nothing. I was once again glued to the screen throughout the running time. I was less glued when the music, which is great, though it just doesn't seem to flow with like the scene and it doesn't have special implication for that particular scene. It just flows in the background and carries on in its backgroundish way. And it doesn't always work so well. It works better in the dramatic moments, but it didn't work for me all the time. What pulled you in? What put me in for the first time in the film would actually be the music. <laughs> if not, you know, the, that ominous cover dumb that plays in the background during the opening credits, then if not with counting that, then it would be the first kind of opening shot of the film, the, the cityscape and the fires rising from the from the factory buildings, and then the Vangelis music playing on the background. Yeah, what, a, what an opening. I could go with that, but I could also go with the end, where Deckard uh, gets scared and uh, they're having the final confrontation. That becomes a non-confrontation. Uh, scissors of Sacrilege, uh, what would you change in, 
in what of the seven versions? Let's go with the final cut, I guess, because it's Ridley Scott approved through and through. I I would very much cut away Ridley Scott approved unicorn dream sequences from the film, which <laughs> by no no way in the end, in my opinion, do does do help the film in in question and basically is. Ridley Scott once again pulling his crazy stunt, be- being the crazy man on the set, m- very much like uh, being the mental retard that we w- that we also can see in such cinematic masterpieces as Prometheus or Alien Covenant. Ouch! Shots fired. Well, uh, bloody hell, you know, shots may be fired, but. I would very much say that, you know, Ridley Scott's fixation on the unicorn is is basically the same old old man Ridley Scott that is also, you know, behind the bright idea to make a prequel to Alien to explain what is a space jockey. <laughs> I, I would almost make the case that the timeline near perfectly fits to support this hypothesis. What would I cut? Uh, the, the film in its entirety is kind of a bizarre experience. Hard to point out what you would exactly go cutting right then and there, but I would change the mood with, again, the music in a way that it becomes more energetic in other scenes where we have more going on or a scene changes, you can change the mood of the music, but it doesn't happen and it bothers me and makes me lull to sleep, so that I would change. You would dare to touch one of the most classical movie soundtracks <laughs> ever produced. Yes, right here. But Henrik, you really know you're watching Blade Runner when... Dot, dot, dot. When you see a unicorn on a screen and your blood just starts to boil. <laughs> you really know you're watching Blade Runner when you see cyberpunk colors. You know, that, that's a good yeah. call. That's a good call, since Blade Runner very much was influential on entire cyberpunk aesthetic. And when you hear... Yep. Three adjectives to describe Blade Runner. I would say sad, dark, and hopeful. Hmm. I could say... Glorious. In its effects. Colorful. Futuristic. Henrik, I think it's... Fair to say you didn't watch your clock. I might have done it. That's not to say I didn't enjoy watching it, but it's kind of an abysmal experience and I did lose focus sometimes. But uh, Henrik, would you recommend Blade Runner? Um, I would very strongly recommend Blade Runner. It is a film that I think really stands the test of time and it is an essential film in a sense that it is one of the cornerstones of a cyberpunk genre. That being said, th- there is the matter that I don't feel that there is a perfect version of of the film. Like every single per- uh, single version has something that I don't like. There's there's a some small some small things that bug me. It's it's either the lack of visual effects in in key scenes. It may be maybe the unnecessary happy ending. It may be the the unicorn unicorn dream sequences. 
but every single cut of the film has has some aspect that I I feel kind of a hold the film itself back and therefore you know I very much would recommend Blade Runner I would almost recommend any version of Blade Runner with the notion being made that the perfect version of the film does not yet exist. I heard that originally in some of the uh, in the work print versions, perhaps the four hour long version or the one that is more that is actually available to people did have the unicorn uh, superimposed into the image with the Harrison Ford's face, but they didn't have a good enough quality version of that available for them, so they had to make this version for the final cut where it's first we see Harrison Ford and we see unicorn and, and so forth yeah the the whole legend behind the unicorn scene is kind of a complete mess Ridley Scott himself goes under oath that the unicorn was always meant to be there and it was originally shot precisely for Blade Runner the Blade Runner historian and the writer of of Future Noir, the making of Blade Runner, Paul as someone on his end has has kind of a defended the whole unicorn by ma- making making the point that according to him there there is a crazy ass fan theory that the unicorn material was taken out of the Ridley Scott film Legend and simply copy and pasted into into Blade Runner. And someone has made the notion that that is an urban legend and that most definitely did not happen, period. And I kind of can... The way I believe how the unicorn has ended up in the film originally is that there is... It goes around a story involving the making of the legend that while Ridley Scott and his crew were kind of making the finishing touches of Blade Runner, they would take test visual shots of a unicorn in a park near where they were actually editing the film. And I actually very strongly believe that it is those those test visuals which which Ridley Scott in the end inserted into Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Of course, I would recommend Blade uh, Runner, but uh, the biggest argument for that would be the visuals that really blew me away. There are these philosophical points, but I, I'm not sure if they are completely that original that it would merit like a serious highlight. But all of these points are interesting, of course, like existence, what it means to be human, free will, and all that. But it makes beautiful vistas, and at the end, uh, quite a solid story, if a little bit slow in its movements. Not only because of the effect of the possible effect of the soundtrack, but I think the movie drags on, drags, drags on a little bit, just like my review right now. Well, Henrik, I guess that that was Blade Runner. I mean, there is a ton of t- themes here. I have read parts of the book but there's not only the book there is the seven versions as discussed a lot of themes a lot of visual elements a lot of things to note about the performances so we could spend like 24 hours right here 
we could with a better preparation than uh, like what what we have the ability to do with this weekly format well yeah maybe you know not so improvised locations with less dead relatives holding us back you know mm, just yeah. pre- just a day before making an episode but then again you know this is this is a film for which some people dedicate their whole lives to analyze and to gush upon. So in in that sense, in Blade Runner is is a kind of a once again it's it's kind of a apocalypse now tier film where if you would really want to deep dive into it, you could actually spend the next five years simply analyzing one film and do nothing else. All right, Henrik. Indeed, there are sometimes these films that come upon us. And when I start to do the background work, I notice that there's so much going on here that there simply is not enough time to go through everything and delve into everything. And that's that's just how it is. Hopefully we touched upon many interesting topics nonetheless. And when it comes to interesting topics this year, Henrik, we still have the, the Flick Lab International Cinema Challenge for 2019 going on. So in 2019, we will analyze 20 international films, delicately handpicked here at the lab. And you get to travel with the lab around the world. 20 movies, each from different countries. We have gone through Apocalypse Now, which is included in this list. We have watched Chunking Express from Hong Kong, Pretty Village, Pretty Flame from Serbia. And we have gone through Inuk from Greenland and plenty more. Films to come from Germany, Chad, Sweden, Taiwan, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, North Korea, UK, Mali, South Korea, Thailand, Japan, Poland, South Africa, and we finish the year with Finland and the Unknown Soldier, Henrik. If this podcast will carry through all the way to the December of 2019, against all odds and your beliefs, Henrik, we are going to cover it. Unknown Soldier. It's a damn time. <laughs> all right. You'll find more information on our pages and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and we also have the homepage. You can find all the information in the respective platforms. Henrik, any closing thoughts or let's get the hell out of here? Let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. Thank you. Good night! To go with the cliches, I myself, I'm here... In the middle of a big just waiting for the to come and punch me out of this coffee house. That's totally not going to work. <laughs> that, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.